Today we return back to the suttas, the sutta exploration series. And the sutta that I had selected for us to go through, uh, it's, a, it's a twin sutta, meaning it's a combination of two uh, that come to us from the numerical discourses or the Anguttara Nikaya. And it is on the contemplation of death. Maranasati uh, Sutta Patama and Dutiya Maranasati Suttas. Um, from the Book of Sixes, uh, Sutta number 19 and uh, 20, respectively. We also have another twin version of it uh, within the numerical discourses, and that is found in the Book of the Eights, where um, we have the same series of instructions. However, we have two additional um, steps or instructions added. That's why they are included in the Book of the Eights. This um, or these suttas are supposed to be in our inventory of meditation techniques, um, if only in, in, in spirit, in our willingness to bring a level of authenticity to our practice. It's a, I find it to be very um, practical um, and one that a person might have a hard time not to find parts of themselves in, at least at, at some points within the suttas, because they speak to each and every one of us, so long as we're alive. Because it seems that death doesn't exist for the person throughout the most, most of their lives until, until something happens to them, to someone they love, to someone they know, which jolts them into reality. Because like in any human endeavor, meditation techniques can also become jaded. Our own practice, our own so-called spiritual path can become jaded. And I'm so grateful for Lord Buddha to have included, not just in, in the, these couple of suttas, but we see um, elements of this instructions on the subject of death in other suttas as well. To shake us into reality. As we try to jump and squeeze ourselves, submerge ourselves into the five grasping aggregates, into the world of the six sense doors. So, 
please bring that uh, a welcoming attitude. I mean, whether you welcome it or not, it's there. Death is there. And it's everyone's lot, every one of us. For some of us, that might even be jolting, shocking. But that's how much influence our ignorance has. Where even with a dedicated practice, one can still be very well protected. from the infiltrating reality that is death. So, it's not necessarily something gloomy. <laughs> Bear that in mind as well. So you're adding more pizzazz, adding more energy, adding more aliveness to your practice, bringing a sense of immediacy to the whole process. So if you could approach it like that, um, you would gain a, a great deal from it. So this is from the Anguttara Nikaya. We'll start with the Patama Maranasati, the, the part one, of uh, the mindfulness of death, uh, which comes from uh, Anguttara Nikaya, uh, and it's 6.19. Here we go. At one time, the Blessed One was living at Nadika in the brick house. It was then that the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus by saying, by the way, brick house was rather unusual. Uh, most houses were either made out of mud, cow dung, or just twigs and, and, and wood. Um, castles in those days were built through uh, with wood bricks. So, but this uh, brick house reference is found in uh, several sutra, uh, suttas. Um, and um, so it happens to be a rather common location where Lord Buddha and his disciples would gather. And Nadika is uh, a city that uh, used to be, might be still there, um, uh, before you get to Vesali. And, um, and uh, so it's, it's uh, referred to in the commentaries as well. Um, I think the other city was Vesali and Kutrigamata, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So anyhow, it was then that the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus by saying, Bhikkhus, yes, Bhante, the bhikkhus replied, bhikkhus, when you cultivate and develop mindfulness of death, it is of great fruit and benefit as it reaches its culmination in the deathless, finding its conclusion within the deathless. Do you bhikkhus develop mindfulness of death? How could you say, uh, I don't know, or no, when, when Lord Buddha is asking you that question? When this was spoken, a certain bhikkhu replied to the Blessed One, Bhante, I develop mindfulness of death. Okay. And how do you, bhikkhu, develop mindfulness of death? The Blessed One asked. Bhante, 
I develop it while I think to myself, if I were to live for, the, for just this night and day, then I dedicate that time attending to the Blessed One's teachings, as this itself would accomplish much, for it would be of great benefit to me. It is in this manner, Bhante, that I attend to mindfulness of death. So he's talking about the whole day and the whole night, a full 24 hours. If he could think about it here and there during those hours, then he knows that he would be accomplishing much to extract from the Dhamma, to remind himself, perhaps uh, thinking about anicca, perhaps thinking about the real, reality of dukkha, or the faulty nature of the body. It, it keeps breaking down. It's unreliable. Looking for those gaps in the sense of false continuity within the consciousnesses or the five khandhas, any of these can link us back to the teachings of Lord Buddha, to the path. Then another bhikkhu said to the Blessed One, Bhante, I also develop mindfulness of death. And how do you, bhikkhu, develop mindfulness of death? The Blessed One asked. Bhante, I develop it while I think to myself, if I were to live for just this day, then I, meditate, I dedicate that time attending to the Blessed One's teachings, as this itself would accomplish much, for it would be of great benefit to me. It is in this manner, Bhante, that I attend to mindfulness of death. So he's not saying just um, um, the whole spectrum of day and night, but just one portion of it, just the daytime, can gain, can allow him to gain a lot from the practice. We're often refusing to consider the presence of death. Basically, what we're trying to say is, let me sustain the sense of continuity. Let me look at what's there behind door number two. What's next? What's next? If I'm disappointed in this experience, immediately the sanyas are there to tap me on the shoulder and saying, don't worry, don't worry. There is the next moment. Don't worry. We'll continue this existence. Don't worry. And then when the, that moment comes where the person is on their deathbed, suddenly there's another kind of don't worry, there is the next one. Lord Buddha talked about that as the sense of bhava, becoming, wanting to be again, yet again, yet again, yet again. If we're disappointed in this experience or in this life, there is another one, don't worry. 
that is being on the chopping board of samsara. We don't know what's next. So this practice is, uh, is about being aware and alert about death as we're constantly engaged in the cutting off cutting off from whatever source of external security that may be lurking in the background. Oh, my relationship with you, my loved one, my relationship with this, my ideals, my goals. Something is always lurking in the background. And that's another way of looking at the grasping aggregates. When we talk about Nama Rupa, when we talk about Vedana, our sanyas, perceptions, memories, thoughts, or our sankharas, our inclinations, our habitual patterns, tendencies. And the constant, constant going after of sense awarenesses or consciousnesses, the different kinds of consciousnesses that we're always gravitating towards. That is another way of looking at the re-becoming, which is also one of the um, asavas, bhava-asava. It's, it's like a leakage. It's a mental contaminant. And so long as it's there, this longing to constantly be drifting from this moment of becoming to another, we're going to ceaselessly roam, flutter, constantly go here, go there, just like a butterfly, throughout measureless samsara, completely at the hands of the five aggregates, based on ignorance. But so long as we're alive, we have the option of choosing to say no, to dig your heels into the ground and saying, well, wait, there's something serious going on because all of this is just a magic show that I am taking part in. I'm that magician who is waking up these dead pieces of bone of this tiger and now I'm giving it life and it's devouring me every single millisecond. Devour me with ignorance of the very fact until my loved ones die or until I'm hit with a severe sickness or the threat of getting sick and dying or ending up alone. All of these things create urgency, and that's what Lord Buddha is trying to inculcate, to see where the bhikkhus are, this group of, of bhikkhus. Then another bhikkhu said to the Blessed One, Bhante, I also develop mindfulness of death. And how do you, bhikkhu, develop mindfulness of death? The Blessed One asked. Bhante, I develop it while I think to myself. However long it takes me to eat my daily alms food, I dedicate that time attending to the Blessed One's teachings. 
as this itself would accomplish much, for it would be of great benefit to me. It is in this manner, Bhante, that I attend to mindfulness of death. So he's saying now, he's, he's shortened it, obviously, from a full 24 hours down to 12 hours, roughly, and now to a portion of time that's much less than that, meaning the time for a bhikkhu to go through his alms bowl, depending on how much food there is in the alms bowl. Sometimes they are pretty full. Um, so we're talking at least an hour, an hour and a half in some cases, maybe more. So Lord Buddha is asking and is waiting to see who's going to get close to bringing that sense of urgency in a much more compelling manner. Then another bhikkhu said to the Blessed One, Bhante, I also develop mindfulness of death. And how do you, bhikkhu, develop mindfulness of death? The Blessed One asked, Bhante, I develop it while I think to myself, however long it takes me to chew and swallow only four or five mouthfuls of food. I dedicate that time attending to the Blessed One's teachings, as this itself would accomplish much, for it would be of great benefit to me. It is in this manner, Bhante, that I attend to mindfulness of death. We're getting close, but we're not there yet. Four or five more, uh, morsels or mouthfuls of food, we're still talking about a long time. A lot can happen. When I was a child, I remember the first time my dad um, would help me cross the street and it would be busy, you know, streets there um, where I grew up as a child. But I thought it was such a chore to look both sides of the road um, because my goal was to cross the street to go to, let's say, the candy store or somewhere. I mean, I'm looking, I'm listening to my parent telling me, okay, look, see where you're at. But then soon enough, I realized, I don't know how old I was, maybe three or I don't know. But it wasn't enjoyable. It was not enjoyable for me to keep looking both sides of the road before crossing. Looking at the presence of death is similar to that. Looking at both sides of the road before crossing, while crossing. And if there's someone with you, even after you've crossed, to make sure they're okay. That is also part of living responsibly. That's one of the reasons why I shake my head when people introduce the Dhamma as nothing more than just being compassionate to others, as nothing more than just doing good. Well, these tendencies, these teachings were there, such teachings, that is, that promote compassion and and doing good 
in the form of other traditions, other teachings. But there's no waking up involved in any of those. There's no liberation from samsara. You're still on the chopping board of samsara. Nothing changes. That's why I'm very critical of teachers, including monastics who get up on very well known around the world, who just advocate for a Dhamma that is just basically be compassionate, be compassionate, be compassionate. There isn't the compelling presence of contemplation, mindfulness of death. Because at the most, the person is going to be reborn with a whole slew of uh, favorable living circumstances, maybe in the higher realms even. But nothing more. You're just buying more time to stay in samsara. So in the presence of awareness of death in the mind of the practitioner, the Dhamma comes alive. The Dhamma comes alive. It is part of Sammasati, in fact. Maranasati is part of Sammasati, which is right mindfulness, crucial part of the Noble Eightfold Path. There isn't Samma Karuna or something like that in there not to undermine the role of compassion, of course, because some might think that I'm putting down compassion. Not at all. So there needs to be a very strong appreciation of death. And again, appreciating death means in this case, in this path, in this Dhamma and discipline of Lord Buddha, we're also talking about the deathless when we're appreciating the role of death in life, that means you're no longer behaving like a child. I was mentioning this to someone yesterday. You're no longer living in a Disney-esque world. The big bad wolf or something like that coming to take. No, none of that. Nor are you constructing castles in the sky. That's not the Dhamma. That's why looking for just a heavenly birth is another form of delusional living. And you have entire sects that came up centuries later after Lord Buddha's death that promoted that, that prolonged our presence in samsara. So that's not Dhamma either. So there needs to be an appreciation, an involvement in all of life's um, aspects. And one of the biggest one is, uh, ones is, is death. Growing up in, a, in, in, in our family, uh, we did not talk about death. Every time I brought it up, even as a child, my mom would just shut me down and say, oh, we don't talk about that. Why? We just went and, and you know, we did the funeral ceremony, ceremony of my uncle, you know, uh, this is when I was about eight or seven. 
yeah, but we're, 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 he's in a better place now, and we don't, we don't talk about that. Okay. So here we're seeing Lord Buddha inviting us to, to think about it, not just to talk about it with others, but to also think about it within ourselves. Especially as we see how the other two bhikkhus are going to respond. Yet another bhikkhu said to the Blessed One, Bhante, I also develop mindfulness of death. And how do you, bhikkhu, develop mindfulness of death? The Blessed One asked. Bhante, I develop it while I think to myself. However long it takes me to chew and swallow a mere mouthful of food, I dedicate that very time attending to the Blessed One's teachings. As this itself would accomplish much, for it would be of great benefit to me. It is in this manner, Bhante, that I attend to mindfulness of death. If you've ever chewed and, uh, some food and it got stuck in your throat, you, ha- you would have a, a different appreciation of that previous sentence where the bhikkhu is saying, even during the time that it takes for me to chew and swallow just one morsel of food. Um, Twice it happened in my life, years ago, where once I was having a meal with a colleague and she suddenly started turning blue, her face. And I noticed that she was not herself. And earlier we were laughing, but now I saw that there was, her face was expressionless. So immediately I dropped what I was, I was sitting across from her. So I got up and I said, are you okay? She couldn't, she was just gesturing with her hands and I knew she was choking at that point. And I did, uh, if you've ever done first aid training, I did what they call the Heimlich maneuver. And um, fortunately, um she she made it she a big chunk of meat came out (laughs) she had not chewed it properly and there was another similar situation uh several years earlier um with a neighbor and uh, his wife came running and slamming against the door asking if we could be of help so basically what i'm trying to say is even something as harmless as a morsel of food. Um, sometimes it happens even with a drop of water, I've noticed, with people drinking. Sometimes it goes down the wrong canal or wrong passageway. And the person doesn't, the body just, you know, it just starts suffocating in front of your eyes. The person was fine earlier. It it was probably eating, you know, that they were probably eating their favorite meal. All of a sudden, they're gone. So that's how quick death comes. So now we see Bhikkhu number five saying something that is, hmm, more pragmatic, more relevant 
to the practice. He's not giving it extra, extra amount of time. Because we don't know. And yet another bhikkhu said to the Blessed One, Bhante, I also develop mindfulness of death. And how do you, bhikkhu, develop mindfulness of death? The Blessed One asked. Bhante, I develop it while I think to myself. However long it takes me to breathe out after having breathed in, or to breathe in after having breathed out, I dedicate that very time attending to the Blessed One's teachings, as this itself would accomplish much, for it would be of great benefit to me. It is in this manner, Bhante, that I attend to mindfulness of death. So after having breathed out, we're not even talking about a whole breath, just the portion of the breath that is coming out after it has been in the lungs. Or after you've expelled the air, now you have no other option but to breathe in just that portion of the breath. He's saying that is enough time for me to just hone in, to look at the teachings, to consider the teachings. And this is why if you have this attitude, it's impossible for you to fall asleep while you're sitting. Because you're thinking the acts of death could happen, could, could come down and cut off my neck any moment. And my neck is going to come off. My head is going to come off at one point or another. No delusion about this. No delusion about this. So I better be present. I must be present. This is my life. My life. Whatever I have left of it. And that brings a sense of maturity to the practice. You're no longer thinking about, oh, what next is going to be coming in through the sixth sense doors. I've had students from different walks of life, different ages, who still try to argue with me of the joys that life still brings to them, the body can still bring to them. Whether it's through touch, sights, sounds, all these things. That's a completely delusional person who's got their head cemented into the ground, cemented. No, not willing to look at the immediacy of death. And when someone dies to them, next to them, close to them, their whole life comes apart. They go into clinical depression. And it takes a long while for them to get back on their feet. So when this was said, the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus in the following manner. Bhikkhus, those of you who said how you attend to the Blessed One's teachings, if you only had to live a single night and a day, or live a single day, or the time it would take to eat a single day's alms food, or the time it would take to chew and swallow four or five mouthfuls of food, are living heedlessly. You're lazy, basically, he's saying. You are leading a life of negligence. 
for your development of mindfulness on death is quite slow and sluggish. Pretty straightforward, don't you think? But bhikkhus, the bhikkhu said, however long it takes me to chew and swallow a mere mouthful of food, I dedicate that very time attending to the Blessed One's teachings. And the one who said, however long it takes me to breathe out, <coughs> excuse me, after having breathed in or to breathe in after having breathed out, I dedicate that very time attending to the Blessed One's teachings, as this itself would accomplish much for it would be of great benefit to me, are living heedfully. You are leading a life of diligence, for you keenly are developing mindfulness of death, making it sharp, as it will take you to the destruction of all mental contaminants, the asalas. Therefore, bhikkhus, you must train yourselves in this manner, we will live and practice diligently, developing sharp, uh, sharp mindfulness of death for the destruction of all mental contaminants. We suffer because of the mental contaminants. We're being pulled this way and that constantly, even in our sleep. The mind, the heart is always active with wants, with likes, with dislikes. We thrive in ignorance. And that's the me method, that's the modus operandi that we have adhered to, to which we have strongly tied ourselves to. That's why we rely on craving, craving more, craving some more. And life turns to us into a, a form or, or a, a method whereby we go ahead and maximize more pleasure versus minimizing anything that takes away from us those pleasurable moments. We're always seeking comfort. We're always seeking, we're thinking that pleasure and happiness are the same. They're not. Because the moment that a person is awake enough to look at the immediacy, the, the presence of death at every moment in their lives, there's a sense of freedom that comes. You're no longer telling yourself lies. Just like you turn to the right and to the left to see if there's a car coming before you cross the street. That gives you a sense of freedom once you see that now it is safe. And the only safety that will come to us is when we pause and we look at What is my involvement in this suffering that I'm experiencing? Is there, is there um, any memories left from my past where I've done similar things and expected the same things? However, I always ended up with being hit with something totally 
unpleasant, although real. Meaning, have I been doing the same old, same old, same old, expecting a different result every single time, even though I know the results that are to come? Yet still, go ahead and try the same method, strategy, which is another form of insanity, right? And that's another reason why Lord Buddha would say, look at the world, and he says, the world is full of crazy people. We're all wanting to stay in the movie theater. Nobody's hitting the lights. So this is an attempt at showing how there isn't much like we're not talking about anything mystical or esoteric about death, if you noticed. When it's here, it's here. It's in your face. It's like that wrinkle that you see after you've had 17, 18 years, 20 years, where your face is unblemished. Suddenly you, or the gray hair, oh, you passed the point of no return. Now your life is going to be just a dedication to cover up. Or to tell yourself lies. Embellish it somehow. When death happens, it happens. And it's happening to us right here, right now. Or it is happening to those around us, people we know. And in that sense, it is both ehipasiko and opanaiko. Ehipasiko means inviting us to come and see. Hey, you don't believe me? Look over here. This is your dead cousin. He was alive last time you saw him, and now he's dead. Ehipasiko, come, come. He's gone. No amount of photographs of your parents, if they've dece they're deceased, will bring them back. Ehipasiko. Call them, see if you can. For years, I had my dad's phone number in my, in my phone, even though he had passed. Every once in a while, it would cross my eyesight. I would just see, oh, oh yes. Oh yes, my father, he was here. But if I go to that house, somebody else is living there. Probably if I call that number, somebody else will pick up. Hmm. That is real. There's nothing esoteric about that. We're not sugarcoating life in a sense. We're not delusional. But it's also an opportunity for openaiko. Openaiko, these are the two terms, two of uh, numerous terms for the Dhamma. Ehipasiko, um, Lord Buddha says, come. I, it, it invites you to come and test it out, to see for yourself. And the other one is openaiko, which is, uh, um, it, it directs the attention inwards. Inwards. Takes you in. So, coming across death, even mentally, to yourself, even when no one's dying around you, at the moment, 
you're mature enough to look and say, hmm, there is that. The breath is telling me this already, constantly. Every time I breathe in, I have to breathe out. Every time I breathe out, if I don't breathe in, I'm going to die. So this is happening all the time. So you're bringing your attention inwards. You're no longer believing in the lies that you've been telling yourself up to that point. So every time you fall asleep while you're sitting, guess what? You're believing the lies that you've been telling yourself. Would you fall asleep if there was a sword somebody was holding right next to your head? A murderer waiting for you to close your eyes. Would you fall asleep? How about if you were standing on the edge of a cliff and you have a baby? And the rocks beneath you are slipping. You will stay very, very, very sharp, alert. You can't afford to close your eyes. So you are then, <coughs> excuse me, considering the presence of death so much so that the awareness of it is anchoring you in the deathless. That's what we're talking about. So then meditation no longer becomes an occasion for consternation or tension or feeling compulsory states of disquietude simply because, oh man, I have to sit through another hour. I have to be aware. I have to meditate. So these are some of the things that we tell ourselves. And one of the best ways that we can address the immediacy of death is also the presence of joy. Now, most people will not see the connection between the two. Like, how? wait a minute, death and joy? Like, how are they connected? And this could have uh, obviously come to us because of cultural influences. However, this path cannot be achieved if there is no joy in the heart. There's a reason why PT stands right there smack dab in the center of the Sambhajhangas. Interesting. PT, the joy. If you're gloomy, you're, you're far away from the deathless. Shwe Umin Sayadaw used to say how you can tell a lot about the frowns on the faces of meditators on retreat, how far they are from the Dhamma. There's a softness on the face of the Arya Savakas, the noble ones, noble disciples. There's a sense of beauty. Many wrinkles too, but 
as they age, but this, the heart is so soft. There's a kindness there. There's an okayness in the mind. Whatever may happen, may happen. Because the eyes are not just, we're not terrified of death. The images I've used, and of course I use them from the suttas, whether it's a murderer standing with a knife, a blade, or something like that, the immediacy of that. Yes, these are there to shock us into reality, but they're not supposed to th keep us in the, in, in the you know, um, stuck in a state of fear. No, that's not what, why we're meditating. We're using those sensations that naturally show up, but once it's there, we have to jump into the lap of the deathless to have an appreciation of the fact that, oh my, I am able to breathe in. So that's what Lord Buddha meant by anicca. Look how these consciousnesses keep coming and going, coming and going, nonstop. And the moment I'm trying to latch on to this beautiful meditative experience, this jhana, I'm trying to frame it, I'm trying to say, ah, I finally reached it, yes, and it's gone. Or the insights that would follow eventually if we persevere. Oh, wow, I thought I actually did it. I, I'm there, I'm there. I'm just, oops, where's that? What was that insight again? So we look in our journals, we look where we recorded maybe some of those insights so we can revive it. Again, we're trying to recapture the Dhamma in pages of some book, in the pages of memories. But to look at death and then look upon these tendencies, it gives you this motherly, fatherly sense of oh, forgiving attitude. Oh, how stupid of me. How silly of me. And then you're seeing all these connections, these, these that are being made in the mind, because now you're clearly seeing and clearly comprehending. Yatabu Tangpajanati. You're able to see how things come to be. And that is one of the ways that you can stay with the deathless because you're applying yoniso manasikara, which is correct, wise, reflective attention by staying on the deathless, because you're thinking about death in a healthy manner. You're looking at guilt, fear, conceit, greed, aversion, etc all from the scope, all from the purview of the deathless. Because you're always observant of the fickle nature of life. You're no longer being sold this whole idea that we keep feeding into the brains of children from a very young age to their death by constantly leaning into the next 
the next, the next, the other, the other, the other. Where about be, uh, people today think that if there is no craving in the heart, then there's something wrong. You're catatonic. You're living like a vegetable. You're saying no to the beauties of life. All these things. Nothing could be further from the truth, of course. So that's another reason why we call this a wisdom path. Wisdom-based path. Because you're waking up. That is, bodhi. Or sambhojhanga when we say that. Sambodhi. So, um, I will now jump to the uh, second uh, sutta. If you notice, they're rather short or shorter than the ones that we've covered. So now I want to jump into the Dutiya Maranasati Sutta, which is the sutta that follows immediately um, in, uh, in the Anguttara Nikaya's Book of the Sixes, Sutta number 20. So mindfulness of death, part two. So they go hand in hand. Um, and it, it, it's like driving the point across. It's making a stronger impact on the reader or listener. And remember, um, one of the ways, one of the five ways that a person can attain is through listening, Lord Buddha says. One of the five ways that a person can attain sotapanna all the way to arahantship. One of the one of the ways, one of the five ways is listening. So please always pay attention to the value of whatever um, messages of the Dhamma you are uh, attending to or, or paying attention to. So again, in the beginning, it's the same thing. So just to allow, in case somebody comes across this sutta separate from the one we just covered, the establishing um, you know, location is the same. So at one time, the Blessed One was living at Nadika in the brick house. It was then that the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus by saying, bhikkhus, yes, Bhante, the bhikkhus replied. Because when you cultivate and develop mindfulness of death, it is of great fruit and benefit as it reaches its culmination in the deathless, finding its conclusion within the deathless. And how, because can mindfulness of death, when cultivated and developed, become of great fruit and benefit, reaching its culmination in the deathless, as it finds its conclusion within the deathless? Here, because. When the day is over and the night is fast approaching, the bhikkhu reflects in this manner. I am not immune from death, as it could come to me at any time, and in many ways. For example, a poisonous snake might bite and kill me, or a scorpion or even a centipede might sting and kill me. Now, such a dangerous event would truly be a dire obstacle for me. Or, so basically, Lord Buddha is listing six ways uh, that uh, a bhikkhu can, a person can reflect upon as ways for uh, 
uh, him uh, to, you know, uh, die, basically. And we have to look at it, obviously, contextually. And because most of these bhikkhus were living, if not all of them, in... Uh, um, in the in the forest, in the jungle, or if you've ever been to India or Sri Lanka or Nepal, um, they don't have screens. The doors are much, you know, there's cracks in the walls. Uh, some, you know, they're not that well protected. So you would have spiders, you would have centipedes, you would have snakes crawling in and out of the house uh, or wherever that you're living. And there is also that some of the more traditional bhikkhus would uh, use is basically they would sleep in, um, what roughly can be termed as a three walled chamber. The fourth wall would be open space. So, uh, just the back basically walls would protect against the wind but you have the fourth wall completely open. That means, um, or, you know, creatures, uh, wild animals could come in, thieves could come in, snakes definitely, um, and all these animals are there. So you're constantly thinking about um, uh, the presence of danger. So those are, so these six, the six that we, Lord Buddha is going to list for us have to do with that, you know, lifestyle. Uh, but you don't have to necessarily be living according to that lifestyle to end up experiencing any of these either. Two, while walking, I might slip and fall off a cliff, breaking my neck and die. Now, such a dangerous event would truly be a dire obstacle for me. There is a practice that is encouraged by um, certain uh, teachers, and that is, uh, we see that also in the Nikayas, of course, and that is uh, sitting uh, at the precipice of a cliff. Um, I've seen a picture once, it was, it's, it's a lovely picture uh, where a photograph someone has taken of a group of bhikkhus sitting on the on, on a very um, sharp, what looks like a sharp cliff. And you don't have room left, basically, for you to lean in. <laughs> if you lean in, you're gonna open your eyes at the bottom of the cliff a few minutes later, probably, or a few seconds later, but definitely dead. That creates urgency. I know in Thailand, in Sri Lanka, in, in Burma, uh, many bhikkhus would do that kind of a practice, especially if they have a tendency to be prey, to fall victims to, to the hindrances, and specifically uh, tinhamida, the sloth and torpor, the drowsiness, becoming sluggish. Uh, because as an individual part, the head uh, is the heaviest part. And it pulls you. If you lean down, you're going to go. But remember that image I shared with you of the baby holding the baby, you holding the baby, and you're at the edge of a cliff and things are slipping. So this adds more immediacy. Um, and uh, you don't have to be sitting at the edge of a cliff. You might even be going 
back and forth to and from your, your alms round, basically, to the village. So you have to know where you're stepping, especially if it's muddy. In Malaysia, I was walking in through these uh, paths and they, uh, it, was, it, it had rained earlier and it was very, very muddy. I had to be extremely careful because they, I was stepping on boulders and I, I could easily slip. And if you slip, nobody's there around you to, to let anyone know or no helicopters or anything like that to come and pick you up to safety. So you're constantly living with the awareness of death. And that's another reason why Lord Buddha would always encourage uh, practitioners to avoid the safety of living with a whole bunch of people, like in a monastery or a structure like that. Number three, the food I ate might not agree with me, or I choke on it and die. Now, such a dangerous event would truly be a dire obstacle for me, just like the examples I've shared with you. I'm sure you have heard of or seen examples yourself where individuals can just choke on their food or um, something might happen because of the food they ate, like food poisoning or something. Four, the bile in my liver might become irritated and erupt, killing me in the process. Now, such a dangerous event would truly be a dire obstacle for me. Your liver does, I think, over 200 different tasks. But it's one of the most underrated organs in the body. It cleanses the blood, it creates uh, proteins, and it... it, it processes all the dirt etc um, and from cells from inside and, and a slew of other things but we never pay attention until sometimes the bile erupts and or gets irritated or um, liver cancer that could happen so in those days of course you didn't have that many you know uh, opportunities to know if your liver is functioning properly. So many people would reach that point, you know, reach the point of no return. And that person might just fall and die because of the, uh, as consequence of having a bad liver or uh, gallbladder, etc. Five, the phlegm in my lungs might become congested, poisoning me from the inside. That means the agni is not working in the gut, which is the digestive fire that needs to be going constantly at a right temperature, at a, light, at a right level of functioning. But if it's not, then you're keeping more stool and dirt and waste in your gut, which means it releases more toxins inside the bacteria. So you are basically, basically poisoning yourself so that might be another cause for your death. Six, sharp and piercing winds might become so agitated that I may die as a result. Now, such a dangerous event would truly be a dire obstacle for me. When we think about Lord Buddha's teaching, and, and especially this scenario, 
where he's addressing a group of bhikkhus, we're thinking that we're basically missing out. The opportunities have been lost because this is after all about 2,600 years ago. We're so far away from the Buddha, we're so far away from moments of awakening, etc. But that, that is ignorance. That has nothing to do with reality. Because just like the monks, the people who were sitting at the feet of Lord Buddha, there is no difference between us and them. Because we, at the very least, share this very, very important fact. The fact of death. That is as original, as genuine, as real, as it was for Venerable Sariputta, as it was for Venerable Ananda, as it was for Lord Buddha himself, as it is for us. So that genuineness can keep the Dhamma alive in your heart, if you want to think of it like that. That also works. So it brings the aliveness back into your practice. Because sometimes we think, oh, we missed the opportunities. Oh, yes, I'm no longer going to be meeting Venerable Sariputta or, you know, Lord Buddha. Forget it. Oh, it's like, I should have been born. I'm born in the wrong epoch or all delusional thinking. All of great use to Mara to keep us in the dark. But just bring your attention back to the reality of death. So basically, so long as death is there for us, it's consideration. We have the right impetus, the drive. We can muster up the courage to create the opportunity. The same opportunities that these bhikkhus had at the time of Lord Buddha. Because then it would mean that you are making the most of your life just like they did. And in that sense, there is zero difference, zero difference between us and them. Even though there is this huge time that has passed. So long as the person is aware of, the, of death hovering over your head. Because you even had bhikkhus who lived their whole entire lives as monks at the feet of Lord Buddha, who went and listened to Dhamma talks for years and could not attain a single level of awakening. Why? They never actually paid attention. So you paying attention 2,600 years later, thanks to this common denominator of death, you are in the presence of Lord Buddha. You are in the presence of his Dhamma. You are in the presence of the noble Sangha. That's how we take refuge every time. Bring that awareness. So you're using death to connect all the pieces together. If you can become like that bhikkhu, or those two bhikkhus, one with the, just a single morsel of food, or the one who is breathing in after breathing out, 
that's what you're doing every time you're aware i could this might be it this might be it i might die right after this or in the process of breathing i might die okay let me be aware of some of the objects the one object let me be alert to that then that bhikkhu should reflect in this manner lord buddha continues so if uh, by, while considering those six causes of death um, you can also add other things like a disease and you know, whatever so once the person is considered then the bhikkhu should reflect <coughs> excuse me in this manner are there any evil and unwholesome qualities to be found within me that i have not yet abandoned serious obstacles that are clear and present danger if i were to die tonight so as you're about to go to sleep you're considering this not just when you're going to sleep by the way any moment you can reflect on this do i have in my heart any unwholesome thoughts whether about myself or others because they're dangerous what if i die and i have you know have them be locked in my heart as i'm dying which basically is going to dictate where i'm going to end up and how now if while reflecting thus the bhikkhu reviews the quality of his heart and he does he does find evil and unwholesome qualities hiding there realizing there are indeed evil and unwholesome qualities to be found within me that i have not yet abandoned serious obstacles that are clear and present danger if i were to die tonight then he must immediately put forth exceptional fervency dedicated effort zeal determination and unremitting energy along with consistent mindfulness and clear comprehension in order to abandon those evil and and unwholesome qualities from his heart you're taking charge you're taking charge immediately the moment you see you're not letting them linger yeah i hate i hate my my co-workers or i hate my boss or i hate my ex or i hate this person or that person who did this to me i'm never going to forgive them or um you're creating constantly uh mental havoc and agitation in your mind for whatever reasons all these are unwholesome states and you're not risking this life this entire life for the sake of holding on to any of these un- unwholesome thoughts and feelings and you're saying no 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 i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to stop it i'm going to end it right now do my best to clear the slate completely clean it wipe it bikus just like someone whose head hairs or cloth or clothes have caught fire he would immediately put forth exceptional fervency dedicated effort zeal determination and unremitting energy along with consistent mindfulness and clear comprehension in order to extinguish the fire blazing over his head or clothes 
Do you postpone it if your hair is on fire? Do you say, well, let's do it next Tuesday when your hair is burning? Have you ever smelled hair burn? It's not the most pleasant smell, is it? Now imagine if your entire head hairs or body hairs, and he was talking also at a time period where men would also have beards and, you know, turbans, not the bhikkhus. So imagine if, and today actually we have a lot of men also wearing, growing beards, long beards. Imagine if your head hairs and your facial beard, your hair is on fire. Would you postpone your work? Or if your clothes were on fire. In the same way, the bhikkhu must immediately put forth exceptional fervency, dedicated effort, zeal, determination, and unremitting energy, along with consistent mindfulness and clear comprehension, sati and sampajanya. Remember last week I was mentioning briefly how if you have sati, and if it's staying with you consistently, again and again and again, returning back to it, it will transform itself into Dhamma Vichaya, which is wisdom. You'll be able to see. So we don't just practice Sati. We're going deep with Sati. Because of Sati, the others will come. If there's a clear understanding of Sila from day one, virtue. In order to abandon those evil and unwholesome qualities from his heart. However, bhikkhus, if while reflecting, the bhikkhu reviews the quality of his heart and he does not find any evil or unwholesome qualities hiding there, realizing there are indeed no evil or unwholesome qualities to be found within me that I have not yet abandoned. Hence, there are no serious obstacles that are clear or present danger. <coughs> if I were to die tonight, serious obstacles. When you are facing certain hindrances continuously, again and again, that's an obstacle. That's another form of a hindrance, another way of describing hindrance, which is another way of saying there's a danger. I have to become more and more aware of that. What am I doing? What preceded it? If I am finding that every time I sit, I'm having the sensual lust, whether it's for food, whether it's for carnal, other, you know, pleasures and things like that. <coughs> what did I do during the day? that might have caused more aggravation in this department, that might have caused this obstacle to really become more magnified. Did I watch? Did I observe? Did I look at any imagery? Any sounds that create lust in me? Any sights? Maybe food? That I notice the mind is going back to them while I'm sitting. Ah, okay, then I'm not practicing sila properly because I'm actually 
adding more firewood fuel for the time when I'm sitting. So I need to practice restraint by using sati and sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension, taking ownership. Because you're not just doing meditation in a vacuous space, you know, it's, it's, it is very dependent on what came before it, what actions you were involved in, what things you were listening to, and what those things you listening to were bringing up within you. Any unwholesome thoughts, feelings, sensations. Then you can't just come back and, and to sit and pretend that everything is just perfect and you're just going to slide into Nibbana. What were you doing prior? That's also part of sila, applying sila. So, um, so once the bhikkhu sees that there are no um, serious obstacles, uh, so therefore, uh, um, in case he dies tonight, then he is to dwell in joy and gladness, meditating day and night on the wholesome qualities he possesses in his heart the joy that I was referring to earlier. You're not, recrea- you're not creating anything in your mind when you're sitting. You're using what you have. It's real. It's a practice-based. You're not delusional. You're not adding more illusions. You're not adding more expectations. You're not adding anything. To the practice. So it's a constantly emptying of a process. You can think of it like that. It's an emptying process. Also, checking in to see, okay, do I have any remorse? Any worries? Check. You can even ask it in the form of a very short question. Very, just very short. Is there any remorse in my heart? any guilt and your heart will respond as long as you don't poke around you don't keep asking intellectual questions just just very simple because you're going to feel at that moment when you realize that there's no no i didn't i'm fine ah you're creating room for pity to arise joy and that's a beautiful state to be in when you fall asleep or when you're meditating, or when you're going about your day. And knowing that you have nothing to be feeling guilty for creates more space in you to feel more energy to put more into the practice. That's how your sadha or your faith or confidence grows. Because you realize this path is really working for me. I'm a happier person inside. Ah, not because of some jhanas, not because I'm part of a group of people who are different than others or whatever. No, you are tasting the fruits of the path. It's ehipasiko. You're tasting it. You're seeing it. You're experimenting. You're, you're seeing it. And that 
drives you to go back and to sit more. That gives you that clear understanding that, oh, because of me having sati, I'm feeling good. Okay, let's have more sati. <laughs> let's have more of that. Because it is giving me the state of joy, yes. But right after joy, there is a very sublime state of tranquility. Pasadhi. Ah. And you check some more, <coughs> excuse me, you check some more, am I lying to myself? Am I recreating something from the past? Or am I just relinquishing, relinquishing, relinquishing? As we covered in the uh, Anapanasati. Contemplating relinquishment, I breathe in. Contemplating relinquishment, seeing, experiencing, giving up. I breathe in. Giving up. You're giving up. You're giving up. You're giving up. And there is this like, wow, it's a massive expansion created in the heart, in the mind. And at that point, even when death happens, you're okay with it. Because you are standing on the solid ground of the deathless. Solid ground of the deathless. Further, because when the night is over and the daybreak <coughs> is fast approaching, the bhikkhu reflects in this manner. I am not immune from death as it could come to me at any time. And in many ways, for example, a poisonous snake might bite and kill me, or a scorpion, or even a centipede might sting and kill me. Now such a dangerous event would truly be a dire obstacle for me. Or while walking, I might slip and fall off, of, uh, off a cliff, breaking my neck and die. Now such a dangerous event would truly be a dire obstacle for me. Or... The food I ate might not agree with me, or I choke on it and die. Now such a dangerous event would truly be a dire obstacle for me. Or the bile in my liver might become irritated and erupt, killing me in the process. Now such a dangerous event would truly be a dire obstacle for me. Or the phlegm in my lungs might become congested, poisoning me from the inside. Now such a dangerous event would truly be a dire obstacle for me. Or sharp and piercing winds might become so agitated that I might, may die as a result. Now such a dangerous event would truly be a dire obstacle for me. Then that bhikkhu should reflect in this manner. Are there any evil and unwholesome qualities to be found within me that I have not yet abandoned? Serious obstacles that are clear and present danger if I were to die tonight? Now, if while reflecting thus, the bhikkhu reviews the quality of his heart and he does find uh, evil and unwholesome qualities hiding there, realizing there are indeed evil and unwholesome qualities to be found within me that I have not yet abandoned, serious obstacles that are clear and present danger if I were to die tonight, then he must immediately put forth exceptional fervency, dedicated effort, zeal, determination, and unremitting energy, along with consistent full, uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension, 
in order to abandon those evil and unwholesome qualities from his heart. Bhikkhus, just like someone whose head hairs or clothes have caught fire, he would immediately put forth exceptional fervency, dedicated effort, zeal, determination, and unremitting energy, along with consistent mindfulness and clear comprehension in order to extinguish the fire blazing over his head or clothes. In the same way, the bhikkhu must immediately put forth exceptional fervency, dedicated effort, zeal, determination, and unremitting energy, along with consistent mindfulness and clear comprehension, in order to abandon those evil and unwholesome qualities from his heart. Um, There's no time to be messing around. That's what the bhikkhu's thinking at that time. So we have to do the same thing. The sharp sword of death is hanging over each of us. Even though we, many of us stop, you know, we try to avoid looking at it. Pretending that it's not there. But that's not going to make it go away. It's there. The fact is there. However, because if while reflecting, the bhikkhu reviews the quality of his art and he does not find any evil or unwholesome qualities hiding there, realizing there are indeed no evil or unwholesome qualities to be found within me that I have not yet abandoned, hence, there are no serious obstacles that are clear or present danger if I were to die tonight, then he is to dwell in joy and gladness, meditating day and night on the wholesome qualities he possesses in his heart. Therefore, bhikkhus, when you cultivate and develop mindfulness of death in this manner, it is of great fruit and benefit as it reaches its culmination in the deathless, finding its conclusion within the deathless. Sad, sad, sad. So that's the ending of the second sutta, uh, sutta number 620. We must reflect with each breath, death is within me. Can we say that every time we breathe in, every time we're breathing out? Can I bring in awareness? which means dhamma-vichaya, the investigation of mental objects. Mental objects are anything that are going on in the mind. Thoughts, feelings, expectations, hopes, fears, all of these things. Dwelling on the concept of death, the presence of death, and seeing if we're adding any imagery to it. Basically, is there dhamma-vichaya in each moment? whenever I'm becoming mindful. And that's a very personal affair. It's, it's a very, you know, if you notice several times Lord Buddha was saying, you have to have that fervency, determined energy, persevering energy, effort. This requires, this path, if you want to go and, and really taste 
its fruits. It requires exceptional effort. If you're an athletic person or you're a tennis player, this and that, or whatever type of athleticism that you've been involved in, you know that if you put lukewarm effort and you're just like, yeah, I'll just join in, you're never going to get much results. If you've ever played tennis and you're hitting the ball, if your racket is not being held very strongly in the correct manner, you won't be able to hit the ball and hit it the right way, hit it in the right angle, all these things. There's so much involved. Well, we have to have at least that kind of an attitude towards the practice. Yes, our, our, our goal is to feed this body. Yes, take care of this body just as much as it allows it to complete the tasks and the work that it must do, we must do before we die. <coughs> yeah, but we'll take care of it because it has the potential to take us to the deathless and that's what we're working and striving towards. But again, this path is not for everyone. You know, in a culture or in a time period where it's like very, you know, uh, integrated and everything is like this, you know, every everyone is a winner mentality or delusional thinking like that. Where everyone is equal. No, that's not true. Look at your life. You see plenty of examples that indicate the opposite of that. And similarly for this path, by me wearing robes, by doing certain rituals, this and that, or anybody going through the routines, going to retreats, doing a meditation so-called that, you know, two hours in the morning, two hours at night even, and then forgetting about the practice, forgetting about any of it, the Dhamma. Because these were monks, remember that. They were monks who had dedicated their lives, but Lord Buddha, by asking them, do you practice Maranasati, contemplation of death? And you saw six examples where the bhikkhus are saying, yeah, I practice it, you know, from day to night, you know, it's very foggy, nothing definitive. The other one, yeah, I go, it's like a whole alms bowl size of the time that I it takes me to go through that meal. But that's, that's lazy. Death will come. Let's be ready for it. But in the context of the Dhamma, that's what the whole point is. When you're thinking about death, it's in relation to the Dhamma. How much Dhamma is in my heart? That's the question. It can happen any moment. How much Dhamma is in my heart? Am I just paying lip service? 
Am I going through rituals when my life is nothing but lies? I'm just keeping up pretenses. I go through rituals. I, you know, I go and pay respect to monks. I give donations, this and that. But when you come over and you open up my heart, my heart is just disgustingly infested with lies. I fool myself all the time. If that's how it is, then Lord Buddha's invitation is just like the person whose head is on fire. Quickly, quickly deal with that. Fix that. Empty out your heart from all those tendencies. Leave the past behind despite all your mistakes so that you don't reignite yourself. Use the Dhamma because we don't know if we, we have this evening to live through. We don't know. So contemplating and reminding ourselves of death brings forth consistent mindfulness. Consistent mindfulness. And because of mindfulness or sati, you're bringing in dhamma vichaya. And if dhamma vichaya is there, then you don't need a teacher to come and say, hey, you're doing this wrong. Hey, you're breaking a precept. Don't do that. No, because your sati is there. You're no longer telling yourself those lies anymore. And because sati is there, which also leads to us having dhamma vichaya, then guess what? This, there is a stoppage of the leakage. Asavas. The mental contaminants. Kamasava, Bhavasava, Avijasava. The sensual lust, the seeking after that leakage, that leakage of always looking over our shoulders to see the next, the next becoming. These are not just theories. These are just any kind of experience you have where you're leaning into that thing outside of this thing which is happening to you. Whether they have to do with the Dhamma or not. And the second one is the becoming part I mentioned. And then the third one is the Avijasava. So we're stopping the Asavas. And this forces the mind to stay put with the deathless. It stays on the deathless. I mean, we call this human birth precious for the simple reason that there is the inevitability of death. And also, obviously, the fact that we have still in this body, this human birth, the availability of the resources which this body provides. We still have some time. Time. Even if the body is in pain. Can you be conscious of your thoughts? 
where your heart is? Can you muster up the courage? Can you put effort? Can you see, okay, I have not been living according to the Dhamma. Okay, yes, fine. Um, am I still alive? Yes. Okay, so let us not do that anymore. And this is where we are putting in heedfulness. Heedfulness or diligence. Being, being vigilant in our practice. In the Dhammapada, Lord Buddha says uh, a very famous quote, Appamado uh, Amatapadang. Heatfulness is the way, the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the way to death. Appamatta namiyanti. Ye pamatta yatamata. The heatful do not die. But the heedless are like already dead. These are not my words, of course. These are coming straight from the Dhammapada, from the lips of Lord Buddha. So, Maranasati, <coughs> contemplation, awareness of death, is nothing gloomy. If anything, it gives life to our practice. It gives us access to the deathless. It's the way to the deathless because you're no longer wasting any more time and taking ownership of your life, creating and bringing joy into your life. And despite the fact that we're 2,600 years after the fact, of Lord Buddha's teaching, we still have the same potential as all the Arya Savakas who did it, who tasted the deathless. So I wish that upon all of us, but it's not a passive wish. It requires efforting, consistent effort, determined, heedful effort. So I will pause here and ask for any questions you might have. Any thoughts about the practice? Thank you very much to remind us to be mindful of death. Um, do you think it is a good idea to be mindful of death during our meditation, during the sitting? Um, a good question. Um, when you find yourself caught in the labyrinth or maze of hindrances, where you forget staying on your meditation object, which happens to all of us at one point or another in the practice, instead of 
engaging in a shadow boxing match with yourself, because that's what it is when you're fighting with your hindrances, you're never going to win because it's just you. Um, bringing in at that moment and you, you see that you've always or constantly are, are, are slipping back into that mode, definitely bring in the awareness of death at that moment because it cuts the tendency. It just quickly cuts to the chase, as it were. And it brings you back, okay, what if death happened just now? Am I going to still be restless or think about, oh, how delicious that food would be or whatever? No. Or the doubts. No, who cares? Death is here. Everybody's attention is like, everybody perks up. Death is a, has a commanding presence. At that moment, just as you, you make a full stop because of death, it does the job for us. We should be very grateful to that at that moment. And then just quickly reintroduce the object and just go with that. Yes, the tendency is your mind is going to come in and start to, again, regurgitate follow those mental sentences, as it were, to re-engage in that mental argument. No, 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 no. Death, remember death? Okay, let's fall back in. In that sense, yes. Um, that, that, so it's usually used as an accompaniment, accompaniment if you will, accompaniment technique. Uh, the death contemplation, unless um, it is usually um, bhikkhus or monastics would do this in the past, where it is the sole practice for a time period for the meditator as they would go to a charnel ground or a cemetery, and they're just sitting there across from a dead body that's being burnt, and just completely there. So I hope that helps. Mm -hmm. Good. Any other thoughts, comments, questions you might have? And by the way, uh, Maranasati is also used traditionally as uh, uh, a group of meditations or meditation techniques um, uh, that are called protective meditations. Um, protection against being caught in, um, you know, um, like I mentioned, arguments, mental arguments, not forgiving someone or ourselves, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when we talk about um, uh, Buddha Nupassana, for example, when we talk about Lord Buddha as Buddha or Arahant, Arahant, um, contemplation of the Buddha, that's a meditation. Another one would be loving kindness, metta. It's another form of a protective meditation. Another one would be asubhas, or asubhas are looking at the repulsive nature of things, phenomenon. So you're basically protecting yourself 
from being pulled into and away from reality. Um, so, um, um, so yeah, so there was uh, many instances or many, many instances where, uh, well, there's one courtesan that used to charge 1000 uh, gold coins per night. That was her fee. And she was very well known in India at the time. So she, her clientele were all very, very rich princes, etc. And uh, there was one bhikkhu who had fallen in love with her from afar. And, uh, but apparently, I'm not sure if she had become a sotapanna. Um, I should go back and look for that. Uh, but basically, um, even despite the fact that she was beautiful, she was this and that, um, she died rather quickly, <laughs> as that happens uh, often. So she dies, and they, you know, they're about to cremate her, and Lord Buddha sends word directly to the king and says, because she didn't have any relatives. So Lord Buddha sends word to the king not to burn her body yet. So to put it on display and to also um, have the king charge uh, money for uh, anyone who would want to spend the night with her. Very strange, isn't it? So... The whole pop, you know, the whole community is gathered around this uh, person, who a day earlier was the um, you know the cause or or the, the uh, many men were desiring her, including this monk. So they start a bidding of a thousand gold coins. Obviously, no one pays because it's a dead corpse of who the courtesan used to be and then obviously the price goes down but no one wants her still meanwhile days have passed and it's festering it's it's worms coming up and the smell the same it's the same body no one added anything and the bhikkhu comes and sees Lord Buddha uses that as an opportunity of the asubha with the help of the fact of death to help the bhikkhu and others to cut the connection between what we use as a goal in life, beauty and things like that. And... Uh, I'm not doing it justice, obviously, because I'm paraphrasing and I'm just, it's a lovely, lovely story. Uh, and it comes from the suttas. These are not, you know, later, you know, stuff added. Um, so they can be very, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> protective in that sense. There's a message uh, from uh, death has a presence to it. Do we attempt to arise this? as a sensation similar to arising metta. Um, from my, just the example I gave of that courtesan, um, 
I, I hope that already answers it, but basically um, we're inculcating. Oftentimes when we're jaded, when we are uh, stuck in a certain way of looking at uh, the world. So it's a basically a worldview. Every time you're breathing in mindfully, you're relinquishing that worldview that you held onto. You're keeping things fresh. And death has a thing about it that allows us to clean and wipe the slate clean, basically. Because it's, I think it, there's a saying like, it, death is the great equalizer. Whether a person is a king, the most ruthless person out there, or the most kindest, we're all going to be dead. But it's very difficult for us to be mindful of that when we see a cruel person putting so many people in danger, in harm's way, or applying their influence, like you see this around the world today, people with influence, with a certain clout, with media coverage, where no one doubts their words, no one uses their brain, except for when they're listening to the mainstream media and things like that. So we have all this powerful entities in the world that are dictating as to how this planet is about to move, in which direction, according to their thinking. And this has been going on for centuries, of course. But none of these people are immortal, despite the fact that they're working on that. But no every one of them are going to die. But meanwhile, the harm that they're causing to millions and billions of people probably is having an impact. Unfortunately, many of us don't think about that. We're just looking at this is happening. So, oh my God, and that creates agitation in the mind. So if you are on the receiving end of the harm that are being caused, please also be mindful of the fact that these individuals are not going to be there forever. Neither will we forever. So what can I do with the theme of death? What do I have control over? That's what I'm trying to say. What do I have control over? how bad a Hitler can be, or what my position could be in response to that. At least when I'm meditating, can I think about my own death for a change? Instead of thinking that this is just a prolonged nightmare that never ends. Because sometimes that's what I'm seeing some, with some students. People are becoming desperate and, and the fear, not just students, but just people have so much fear in their hearts now. There's no joy left. And that's not right. Because the Dhamma will die quicker. I mean, the teachings of Lord Buddha will disappear a lot quicker when we allow the grief and the fear that is, that is being fed to us 
to dominate us, to dominate our world. Earlier, I was saying the role of joy. Without joy, you cannot taste the deathless. You cannot taste the dhamma. There needs, there must be joy in our lives. So yes, in that sense, just like in the case of metta, you must inculcate, you, not, you must animate your heart with the fact that there is death. Oh, what a burden oh, comes off your shoulder. You mean to say I'm not going to have to withstand this pain for another hundred years? No. Okay, that relieves some of the tension. So where is my responsibility then? Well, at least let's start with joy. Am I feeling joyful? No. Okay, so what can I do to actually bring some joy? Get out. Go outside. See the sun. If it's nighttime, go outside and see the stars. Look at the stars. Imagine if you were on a spaceship or just you were pulled out of this planet and you're a million miles away and you turn back and you look at the blue dot. Do your worries matter as much? Being so far away. They don't. All your brothers, sisters, mother, father, everything. You're so distant from everything. And that creating of a space is what contemplation of death also provides for us, where we don't have that sense of strong, thick sense of identification with whatever is happening to me. Just like I was mentioning to uh, KK earlier about using the death theme to trigger, to bring you back to your object. Similarly, you're using it as a jolt, as a jolting system to shock you. Just like in the case of metta, when we are meditating, trying to sit with metta and there's nothing happened, we have to use, go back and use that genuine, original, 100% true experience that we've had in our bodies, which the body has never forgotten, of a beautiful, loving moment. Boom, that's the jolt. That is the trigger. Similarly with death. So when you are stuck in the mire, in the gunk of the world's concerns today, where you're so disoriented, just leave everything out. Just, just quickly, quickly think about your own mortality. Think about that sword over your neck. <laughs> what a relief that is. Oh, I don't have to suffer that long. Okay, so there's death. Okay, so now I can be as alive as a little child. Alive. Real. You can only love, you can only laugh in the present. You can't laugh in the past or in the future. That's what you're doing. You're igniting your practice with life. And that's what death, contemplation, maranasati, um, contemplation of death brings to your practice, freshness. So I hope that helps with that question. Any other thoughts, comments about the practice? Before we close, <laughs> okay.
Let us uh, share some merits then. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Be well. May the blessings of the Triple Gem be with you. And may you be strong, diligent in your practice. And may you always reignite your hearts with joy. You can never have enough of it, you know. <laughs> it's like sati. You can never have too much sati, which is great. You can never have too much wisdom. <laughs> so, I'll see you next week. And oh, some his messages. Oh, sadhu indeed. Be well.